Today's episode of Insufficient Facts is brought to you by All In My Head, an audio drama about Nova, a young woman suffering from sleep paralysis. As she tries to get to the bottom of her condition, she discovers there may be more to the monsters in her dreams than she thinks. Stick around at the end of the episode for a sneak peek of the show. Welcome back, everyone. You are joining us today with Insufficient Facts, your science-based podcast where we bring some cool science facts to your attention, tell you a little bit about our lives. Um, just to remind you who you're with again, I am Christiane. I'm Raquel. And I'm Kyle. So today, oh, I'm excited about our topics for today <laughs> because I have some strong opinions about this You guys topic. should see here in the studio right I'm now. I'm vibrating with energy. <laughs> you it's can't only, see it's it. It's only, what, I'm... episode four and we're just... Supercharged here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, this is this is. I, I have again, like I said, strong opinions. So I'm I'm hoping that uh, that well, you'll learn something today. So, and if you have strong opinions, let us know. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. Like we're always happy to uh, interact have a, with a you dialogue, yeah. <laughs> a, a polite one. But you can you can have strong opinions as long as you're polite. You yes. Know? Don't don't start spitting vitriol my way, please. Yeah. I um, will scientifically wrestle you. <laughs> <laughs> Not physically, just and I will physically wrestle. You know, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, you guys. Uh, Raquel does uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah, don't mess with me. Yeah, so don't don't because mess with I don't me. want to. Fight yeah, you. <laughs> no, no fighting. So our topics for today that I'm so pumped about. Um, we're gonna kind of start off with our segment about a recent headline in science to kind of introduce you to what our topic is about, but it's gonna it's an interesting recent article about how you can use this particular fungi, uh, throwback to one of our earlier episodes when we talked about the fungus among us, the humongous fungus among us. But mm. this headline is about fungi and they they can be used as pesticides. So we're going to talk about that uh, to start the day off. And then we're going to go into a science fiction versus science fact segment. But this one, it's going to be a little different from what we've done traditionally in that it's going to be what is science fiction and what is science fact. So we're not going to necessarily discuss um, a particular movie this time around, just kind of some p- myths about this particular topic that we're going into today, which is GMOs, um, which is a pretty... I'll throw a quick okay. Jurassic Park reference on there. Yes, yeah. Jurassic Park will be our kind of... Uh, That'll be a segue. Yes. And then... <laughs> so that's going to be led by Kyle. And then after Kyle kind of tells us what is and what is not fact, um, we're going to go into our bizarre science segment with mm. Raquel, who is kind of going to talk about some of the odder things that uh, science does with genetically modified organisms, which yeah. is what GMO stands for. How we deal with them as scientists and how you deal with them. Yes. And, and you know, we do too in the grocery store. <laughs> yeah. They're they're part of our everyday lives. And then, Spoiler alert. They're everywhere. Yes. Everywhere. Yes. And you're still alive. Yeah. You're not dying yet. Don't worry. <laughs> So, and or then, dying every minute, because, yeah. you know, but, but anyway. <laughs> not of necessarily of GMOs. Um, so um, the last segment that we're going to kind of divulge on is I'm going to lead us through a classics segment, um, as usual. But I'm going to tell you guys about a wonderful book that I highly recommend you check out if you're at all interested in our topic of today, which is Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. So... I'll kind of tell you why it's such an important book in our field and kind of what she did and what the book is about and why I like it so much. Um, But we'll kind of get into that later on. And then as usual, we'll end with our lifting the veil segment where we tell you about our lives. So stay tuned. Fiery opinions, genetically modified organisms. Maybe you don't have a strong opinion, but you you should one way or another. So (laughs) let's get started. 
Uh, first segment is going to be our recent headlines segment, right? Yeah. And that is, oh, sorry. With us, with me today, as usual, let, I'll let everyone introduce themselves. It's You're listening to Christian. Raquel. And Kyle. Yeah, so the recent headlines segment we yeah. have today is talking about fungi uses pesticides. Mm-hmm. I think this is really fascinating because, as we'll get into in the rest of the segment, pesticide use has a lot of, at least synthetic pesticides, has a lot of um, negative effects on our environment and on our bodies. So using something that is biodegradable and can cause less harm on a larger scale is something that would be of extreme value to the agricultural industry. So when we talked about fungi in our last episode, we mentioned a species that can inhabit ants sort of take over their body and I have you the zombie ants episode yes Mm -hmm. yes scary science it sounds like a similar mechanism or an organism that works in a similar fashion is um, the topic of the article that we were going to be talking about this was really creepy how stuff works uh, article that we're referring to fungal based pesticides some research that's been done by Paul Stamets he found uh, an organism that naturally can control ant populations through kind of parasitizing the ants and killing the ants while leaving the crops safe. They're termed biopesticides right now, so that's that's really interesting. Right, so instead of using a chemical pesticide, yeah. you just kind of throw this fungus out there and it kind of takes over and kills all the ants. So yeah. And this is going to come up later yes. with organic foods. Yeah. Yes. So this is a really great alternative, but it does have its downsides in that there are costs associated with what cultivating could, these fungi. What could possibly be the downside of a zombie-eating... <laughs> Ant. Like a zombie-eating mushroom just growing everywhere. You know, there are some barriers to implementation right now. But we, we put in this fungus in the field. It just controls your brain. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> brain of ants. It's a little different. <laughs> yeah. Bit of a stretch, but... Uh... And if you remember from the fungi episode, it doesn't directly infect the brain. You know, just indirectly takes over the entire ant's body. It just puppeteers yeah, them. Just, just casual. Yeah, it's the puppet Real master. casual. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that, that's really... Um, that's something that the U.S. agricultural industry is looking into right now is this new realm of biopesticides that can be a really useful alternative to yeah our normal chemical pesticides mm-hmm. and you know traditionally with agriculture you would spray with you know some kind of chemical over your crops or whatever you have that you're trying to grow so that it kills off any unwanted weeds or insects or things like that and, and the fungus is already in the plant ecosystem it is a fungus mm-hmm. among us yes yeah. we made a there was a little episode about this where we talked about how mushrooms are the internet of the forest mm-hmm. and if you haven't listened to that episode it's fascinating yeah. mm-hmm. so it seems really natural to have a pesticide through a fungus in that mm-hmm. sense yes. it's already there and fungi have given us a lot of really useful tools like penicillin that, that was found through mm-hmm. the fungi penicillium mm-hmm. so yeah this is definitely I think fungi are a really untapped resource, and people like Paul Stamets, who are becoming more popular, Michael, in terms of um getting the word out there that they can be used for all of these various methods. We have so much to learn. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Thank God for Paul Stamets <laughs> and fungi. Yes, thank God for fungi. 
so that you know, it's interesting because. <clears throat> So we're going to talk a lot about pesticides and chemical pesticides and agriculture in this episode since we're talking about GMOs. But there is definitely alternatives out there. So whether it's the form of fungi or um, growing crops together that, you know, naturally one kind of deters a certain type of pest. There's other ways than using chemical pesticides to to essentially grow crops. So we're going to talk about that today. But Definitely, fungi. We don't know enough about them, and when the more we learn, the more we see how useful they are. Yeah. is really what I I think is we're just underutilizing them, really. Yeah, definitely. So with that, we can move along to our science fiction science fact segment. Science fiction science fact. <laughs> All right. So we are going to talk about um, the science fiction in the popular sense about GMOs, and I think people have become. People's maybe first introduction to like a genetically modified thing, probably through Jurassic Park. Yep. There's the there's the classic scene. The uh, heroes of the story enter a, a dark laboratory with lots of strange computer screens, <laughs> and there's sort of a holographic image of like a frog being crossed with some other animal. Yes. And then there's a dinosaur, and I think <laughs> magically. And Jeff Goldblum says the scientists spent so much time thinking about if they could, they didn't think about if they, if they should. They should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, this is so people are familiar with GMOs, but so that's the movie version of it. But the popular version of it is it's this deep, dark, scary thing, and there's people picketing in front of Whole Foods, mm-hmm. trying to get more organic food into Whole Foods. I think the name is also kind of intimidating. It is GMO, like genetically modified organism. Yeah, it yeah, sounds I like they think sci-fi. Yeah, it, it does sound pretty intimidating. It sounds like you know the other thing that. Is similar to that is like UFO unidentified <laughs> flying organisms. GMO, like, UFO. Uh, they're all seem. There are trigger words, right? Yeah. Triggered. This actually was true for MRI. MRI is the magnetic resonant imaging. Maybe yes. you or someone else has t- taken one, but the actual scientific term is nuclear magnetic resonance. So mm-hmm. they had to drop that first part right. so it wasn't People, scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. Yeah. Names hold a lot of power. Yeah. Um, so we're just going to go through a list of. Science fiction or science fact questions. So, fact one or fiction one. <laughs> GMOs are new. False. <laughs> Wrong. A lot of these are going to be false. <laughs> In the flexible sense, people have been modifying things for millennia. As soon as people could figure out how to grow something, they decided, how can we make it better? How can we make it bigger? And not just crops, right? Even what I study, back to my, my domestic dogs, like mm-hmm. you can say that all of our domesticated animals are genetically modified. Like if you look at a pug next to a wolf, there's some serious there genetic modification. There were no Neolithic pugs. Yeah. yeah. The, the pugs didn't ask, to ask for that, but they, they've been selected for very different genetic material in terms of their morphology. Yeah, think back to to your high school biology when you learned about Gregor Mendel's experiments where he was crossing peas and different plants to try to select for specific traits. So people have been messing with genes for a long time. Yes. But I think the the first instance of uh, like GM crops as we understand it where people are like messing with just the DNA specifically came sometime in the 70s. Uh, University of Washington invented a uh, a genetically modified tobacco plant that had less nicotine. Hmm. Hmm. So, interesting. Yeah. Wonder why. So, want less. So, which brings up the next thing: a lot of food is GMO. Fact or fiction? It Guess. is fiction. <laughs> yes. I'm gonna list. In fact, I'm gonna list all of the uh, GMO food I could find. Are you ready for this? Yes. Ready. Lay it on us. Alfalfa. Canola, mm-hmm. cotton, mm-hmm. corn, 
soybean, sugar beet, eggplant, papaya, potato, squash, sugarcane, tobacco. That's a lot. But in the grand scheme of things, that's very a small fraction like go, of walk, all the crops. That walk through a supermarket, true. and it's it's not that much. It's like, what are you actually going to buy? Maybe something corn based or soybean based. Mm-hmm. And even again, back to this, like, so these are things that have actually been genetically modified, right? So they're, they're, have been toyed with at the genetic level. But even if you look at all of our crops and you look at the, the wild strain or the wild version of how they would, they grow in the wild versus how they've been cultivated and the kind of crops that we grow um, in our agricultural sense, like if you look at a wild banana compared to like a banana that we grow on banana like plantations and, and farms, they're really, really different. The yeah. fruit uh, is a lot bigger and there's a lot less seeds and it ripens, you know, at certain times of the year. And this is the case for almost all of our crops where we've selected for basically whatever the crop, the the part of it that we can sell. Usually we want the most amount of that that we can breed into these crops. Yeah. So, so why I say it's a lot and... You know, it isn't a lot when you look at the list, but the fact that soy makes up so much of what we yeah, eat and, and corn. sugar, yeah. yeah, that that's that's why I could see people saying a lot of our food is GMO. But yeah, you're right; it is just a. It's n- worth noting few of these um, products. Mm-hmm. Only ten percent of all the cropland in the world is for GMO food, so nine out of ten of the land is for just normal food. Yep. Um. Another curious note, insulin is GMO. G- insulin is a GMO thing. Hmm. Which brings up the next fact, or fiction. <laughs> GMOs are bad for you. This is this false. This is the big one that people... <laughs> this is false. <laughs> GMOs are not bad for you. Yes. So decades and decades and decades of research say no. And there was a really, um, there's been really powerful meta-studies. These are studies of studies. Studies, studies. yeah. <laughs> meta and, I mean, one inception what, of studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one meta study looked at over three thousand studies on GMOs, and they found absolutely no higher risk of eating GMO food. Yeah. Um, the problem is, it's hard to prove if something's safe in every single case. You can only prove it's not bad. <laughs> yes, which yeah. makes it difficult for the public to accept this kind of thing. But at least science is being honest with you. It's not bad. <laughs> yes. I mean, viruses and bacteria have been sticking their DNA into us for a long time. Long, right. long time. About longer than we've been a species, much longer. Yeah. Even before there were vertebrates, the origin of multicellular organisms, that there was a big modification of our our DNA. Yeah, nature does these uh, processes all on its own. Yeah. Yep, GMOs are okay. Um, So, but this still raises the question of whether or not will GMO crops take over? Could they take over a field? Um, Not really. In fact, people, companies that and research labs that were designing GMO crops invented something called terminator seeds. It's a seed that will only sprout once, turn into a plant, but the plant can't reproduce. It can't make a new generation of itself. Yeah. Can't make new seeds. But on the, on the other hand, this would require farmers to have to buy seeds every single year. Yeah. Right. So normally in agricultural, when you grow crops, you know, you invest in some kind of starting stock of seeds when you're just starting out. You plant the seeds, they grow into your crops, you harvest the crops, and then you some portion of that crops you allow to seed so that you can save that and replant that next year. Um, with these terminator seeds, however, they have to essentially go back and replenish their seed stock every year from the company that owns 
the patent or the the terminator seed so it's good for the company in that you know they can control exactly who is growing what and how much of it they're growing but yeah and even if there's a risk of growing different plants next to each other, you kind of can only plants usually self-pollinate themselves. Mm-hmm. So, like a plant, like a couple miles away downwind, isn't really at risk, and it's really only between similar species. So people either create a buffer zone where there's a big gap between crops, or they put different crops next to each other. So there's lower risk of any sort of genetic crossover. Um, so fact or fiction: GMO crops are poisonous. Dun dun dun. This is also false. Um, GMO crops are okay, and poison in general is all about who the poison is for and how much of it you're taking. And the GMO crops naturally produce a pesticide that is only for pests, for bugs. And uh, the pesticide is derived from a little organism. It's, so it's an actual living thing that the GMO things are capitalizing on called Bacillus thuringiensis, a.k.a. BT. So you might have heard this term, BT crops. And it's highly selective just for pests. And uh, it has absolutely no, it has nothing to do with people. People are A-OK with BT crops. It would be a pretty bad uh, marketing scheme if you grew something that was poisonous to your clientele. Pretty so, bad. You know, that's, that's you know, you, that's something they generally avoided. So you want to kill the bugs, but not the people eating the food that yeah. you're selling. Like coffee is bad for, coffee will kill bugs. Mm-hmm. Chocolate will kill dogs. Yep. That, but so these things are poisonous to those things. So chocolate is poisonous to dogs, and yet they're looking at us eating it. So <laughs> it, it's all about who is it for. So these, yeah. so the, so the GMO crops, the BT crops, are highly, highly, highly selective. So the, here's my final factor fiction for y'all <laughs> listeners out there: organic food is still more nutritious. This is false. <laughs> this is false. So I'm more not, nutritious than GMOs. Is that that's the comparison you're making? The right? GMOs are not less nutritious than organic food. There we go. There we go. Organic food is n- is not more nutritious than GMOs. Yeah. So um, people, uh, one study looked at um, food from all the way back to the '60s, and um, it was there was absolutely no difference between crops then. And also in a blind taste test with uh, UK people, you people in the United Kingdom. <laughs> Um, if you're listening in the UK, shout out to to you, but <laughs> to you in, in the, the UK. UK. <laughs> um, and so they gave they gave people a blind taste test. They gave them a GMO food and they gave them um, organic food, and they couldn't tell the difference between it. Which makes, it makes sense to me because it's not like you're altering any of the like sugar Flavor. storage yeah. or like actual caloric value of the fruit. It's just you're making it produce some kind of pesticide deterrent. So th- yeah. this doesn't surprise me too much, at least. Yeah. But yeah, so there's a lot. Of the, the reason we bring all this up, right, is there's a lot of misconceptions or kind of um, these ideas that people have about GMOs out there that are are pretty untrue. So. I think the main reason that people are are scared or are against GMOs is they think they're unhealthy yeah. or dangerous to our health. Um, those seem to be the main reasons that that there's been a pretty strong like political move against them. So there are mm-hmm. some countries that have outlawed GMOs. Um, yeah, Kenya outright says no GMOs, and this is a country where people are going hungry. I mean, a million people die a year from vitamin A deficiency, yet no one is growing or receiving any what is called golden rice, which has more vitamin A than spinach. Right. So, 
I think my you shouldn't if you you should do your research on this kind of thing. Yeah, you, there definitely. is there are reasons to be upset about GMOs, but it is much more about the economics of, of yeah. how GMOs are implemented and the fact that they can be patented and hoarded by large companies, and then this kind of is is. Um, the science is sound. The science, the science is, is there. You shouldn't worry about the science side of things or the health side of things. It's really like from an economic standpoint that this becomes troublesome of yeah. patenting these seeds and, and making, you know, the, the system that's kind of in place of, of this where it really gives these companies, these large companies, uh, an advantage over the farmers. So that's what you should be upset about. And that would be a strong not to tell you how you should think, but <laughs> this is my personal We're just here opinion. To provide information. I think you know it's fine. You know, I'm I. There's in my opinion. Well, I don't have anything against GMOs from the scientific standpoint or the health standpoint. It's just from the economics side of things that I start to find it a little concerning. Yeah, because so. organic food is always more expensive. Yes. But I, now, after doing this research, I'm not even sure it's more healthy for you. Yeah. Like, for example, um, organic food is sprayed with an organic pesticide so it has to be like natural in, or- mm-hmm. in origin for a long time organic farmers were using a pesticide called rotenone which attacks the mitochondria so all things have mitochondria so you know that actually- you should, guys hopefully you know the joke like the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell yeah. it's like a it's a joke but it's true it's just yeah. like funny it's a power plant and it, it's the breathing you. part of the cell so rotenone this organic pesticide so f- sprayed on organic food for a long time it actually suffocated the mitochondria and, and completely killed the cell, but it did this indiscriminately. There was no like specificity. It wasn't selective. It just killed any right. mitochondria. So if you came in contact or ingested rotenone, that would be you have Bad. mitochondria in your cells too. So yeah. that would that could be very harmful. Yeah. So you know things to consider. Do your research. I mean, organic. It's usually not you know chemical pesticides, and we'll talk about like why chemical pesticides are so historically and still even today bad for you, but um, there, there's no, no, doesn't mean that they're not using you know, pesticides mm-hmm. and adding things to what they're growing. Yeah. So yeah. just do your research about where your food is coming from. Locally is, you know, you can t- if you go to your farmer's market, you can talk yeah, to Yeah, that's you. the best way, yeah. I think, is to just go to the farmer's market. If you're in Los Angeles, there's lots of farmer's markets. Go talk to them. Talk about how they grow their food and what they're putting on their food. Hmm. Yeah. So that's a good way. So before we go if on to the next segment, I want to... Yeah. So, if, so in order to do your own research, I recommend a Scientific American article by Christine Wilcox, last name W-I-L-C-O-X, Myth Busting 101. It's all about GMOs. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, that's a, definitely a good place to start. Yeah. So, you know, if if it is a concern for you and you want to eat, you know, healthy and kind of know where your food is coming from, do your do your research. Like, I we totally understand that that's not economically feasible for everyone. Um, but if it is a concern of yours and you want to kind of put your money where your mouth is, literally, um, <laughs> you know, there's there's a good resource for you. Yeah, another good uh, you, if you uh, like to like watch your science instead of read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, another good YouTube channel is In a Nutshell. And there's a really good GMO episode. It's only about eight minutes long. It's animated. It has all of the um, scientific research cited in the comments. Over 600 hours of research was given to those little eight minutes on GMOs. Yeah. Very well researched. Great yeah. resource. So in a nutshell, YouTube channel. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for joining us today on Insufficient Facts. If you love science like we do, then we invite you to join our exclusive Fact Finders Club. By joining, not only do you support the show and the panelists, but you'll gain access to the resources and bonus extras that we don't release anywhere else. To join, visit our website, insufficientfacts.com. 
So now we're going to have kind of move on to our next segment, our bizarre science segment, where Raquel is mm-hmm. kind of going to introduce us to the otter side of GMOs, maybe stuff that you're not as aware about that are also genetically modified organisms that are used as in science and research experiments. Yeah. So. I keep thinking you're saying otter, like the, <laughs> uh, the aquarium. And I keep hoping otter. there's going to be like a genetically modified otter. <laughs> Those would probably, I mean, I don't know how you can make an otter cuter, but... I'm sure there, there Maybe are Maybe we could make it different colors. <laughs> purple otters, I'd like to say. Yeah, like yeah, purple yeah. otter. <laughs> yeah, so let's get into our bizarre science segment. So this segment is going to be all about demystifying GMOs. And I really appreciated Kyle's segment. I learned a lot putting together the information for this episode. I was unlike Kyle and Christiana. I didn't have any super strong opinions on this. I just kind of buy whatever at the grocery store fits into my budget at the time. But I also didn't feel, in terms of what I knew, that GMOs were, you know, really bad for you. So let's get into that. Um, Earlier this October, GMO Answers, which is a website you can go to. They have a ton of information about GMOs. They conducted a survey that found that 69% of Americans aren't confident in their understanding of what genetically modified organisms are. And I think that could be where a lot of the um, negative feelings towards GMOs come from. Is just sometimes we have, we don't really like what we don't understand. Right. So hopefully when you listen to this episode, you'll feel like you have a more firm understanding of GMOs, or at least you know where to go to get some information about them. Exactly. We're hoping that you know you can be, leave this podcast a little bit more informed about why you should or should not be concerned about GMOs. Yeah. So the debate about GMOs and whether or not they're healthy can be really intimidating and stressful. So here we go. The definition of a GMO, like Kyle was saying, is associated to the actual targeting of the genetic makeup of an organism, taking uh, genes from one organism, usually bacteria, and putting them in another, versus what we talked about before, which is selecting different traits, like if you're breeding dogs or if you're trying to get the biggest pea plant have the most produce. <laughs> you you cross different tr- strains so that you can get what the outcome that you want. But here we're going straight to the big guns, targeting the genes. Straight to the source. Yeah. So... Um, One thing the public, you, our listeners, may be less aware of is that we use GMOs a lot in research. Uh, That's where I get most of my interaction with them, other than when I'm at the grocery store. We use GMOs in the scientific community because they have allowed us to tease apart questions that we wouldn't have access to answering otherwise. I use them on the reg. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kyle working with bacteria. In my lab, we use rats and mice as well. And we can use these genetic tools, modifying the genes of these organisms, to answer specific questions that we have. Mine happen to be about sleep and Kyle's. About community behavior. We call it synthetic biology as well. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really cool stuff we can do with this, this tool of modifying organisms genetically. I'm writing a paper right now on how I engineered a strain of bacteria to make semiconductive materials. So the dream is to have um, literally home-brewed computers, like make bacteria, make transistors. Biodegradable transistors? What would be the end goal of that? What would be the advantage over the way that we make them now? 
Uh, this is going to be a, a whole episode one day. <laughs> but we are approaching what is called the Morse law. So transistors are getting smaller and it gets harder to make them. Mm-hmm. But um, that's because humans are making things top down in a factory, but bacteria make things bottom up, almost um, atom by atom. Yeah. So if you can tap into that natural atom by atom construction, you could make any material you want. And a this transistor, future, for those of us who aren't as familiar with like the hardware, uh, what does a transistor do? Like, What is its function normally in computers? It's the neurons of a computer. It's the thinking part. Yes. Nice. Yeah. So being able to... So I'm sure you have to insert some sort of genetic code to be able to get your bacteria because they don't produce this naturally, right? You're making genetically modified bacteria so that you can... Yeah, we'll add, we, I will add a gene to a bacteria or um, I'll add a control knob to a gene that's already there so I can control how much the gene turns on. Yeah, lots of modification, but that's possible nowadays yeah. with the genetic material. And in my lab, we inject viruses into a rat brain so that we can target specific cell types and we can see how if we switch on a particular cell population or switch them off, what effect that has on sleep because the virus can inject DNA into the cells and then we can study outcomes based on that. So another really fascinating thing that happened recently is we've got glow-in-the-dark bunnies Thanks to yes. genetically Finally. modified organisms. Finally. In case you were just waiting your entire life to see a glow-in-the-dark bunny, what a time to be alive, guys. Yeah. But the end goal wasn't just to make glow-in-the-dark bunnies No, with this they weren't study. like, you know what would be cool? Bunnies that glow in the dark. <laughs> how can we make this happen? So far on the pod, we haven't, do, we haven't done a great job of like talking about how serious we are at science. Yeah, yeah. If you didn't yeah. listen to our lap, last episode, people gave ecstasy to octopuses. Yeah, you should check that episode out. <laughs> science can be fun, you know, and interesting, and like you, you know, it doesn't have to always be serious, but it, this is our way to talk about the fun side of science, because yeah. otherwise we're in our labs doing the... Probably the more tedious side. Yes, it would definitely, not be definitely the more tedious side. So they were able to make glow in the dark bunnies, and that's because when you insert a particular gene sequence into a cell or a tissue that you're interested in, you want to be able to confirm that the expression is actually happening. So just inserting DNA doesn't mean that it's going to make the protein you want. And when you tag it to something like green fluorescent protein then you can see that fluorescing and GFP. you can be sure yeah you can be sure that your the gene sequence that you inserted is now being expressed as a protein so that's what the goal was for these scientists is they wanted to see whether or not they could have a specific protein be expressed in these female bunnies in their milk and that's why we've got glow in the dark bunnies yeah and for those of you who have never been inside a lab or are really curious about how genetic engineering really takes place i want to walk you through a normal like afternoon when I do genetic engineering and make yes. a GMO Take us organism. On a journey. Go for it. So I first I go into my dark tower. <laughs> <laughs> into no. the basement, the dungeon. No, what I actually do is I go into my well lit lab at USC. <laughs> And I take a little pipette like to suck up some water, and it's completely clear liquid. And I go to a little tiny tube, and I put a little clear fluid in there. And then I put another little drop of another clear fluid has another DNA. You're just you basically are eye dropping yeah, different I, clear liquids. And then I put other... and then I put this tiny little drop of clear liquid into another tube of other clear liquid. <laughs> and then I take that clear liquid and uh, shake it around a little bit, and then I put it onto a uh, a little test tube. 
that has some like food for my bacteria, and then they grow up. Oh man, you're bringing back memories. <laughs> and then uh, if it worked, they'll turn like red or blue or green or yellow. And if it didn't work, then which it doesn't most times. <laughs> I will repeat the process of just adding cl- little tiny clear drops of water together all afternoon, and then. Yep. It it's it's not like. I was hoping there'd be like thunder and lightning and like Frankenstein would come out and like chase me down the hall. But it's not. It, it's just, it's just it's very quiet. Glamorous. I'm listening to NPR. It's like, you know, yeah. it's, it's pretty quiet up there. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason that they put these like colorful, like why glow in the dark or why red and blue is basically like if you have a, a little thing that you're adding to the DNA or the genetic material of an organism that makes it show some kind of color, makes it glow in the dark, and you attach that to something that's like going to give it antibiotic resistance or some kind of other gene expression that you're interested in but that doesn't have a visual cue. By Mm -hmm, connecting mm -hmm. these and then inserting it, you can see where that's kind of fallen out into your organism. So if if it's present in your organism, you'll see it show that color or you'll see it glow in the dark. So you know that that other little piece that doesn't have a visual cue also got added to the genetic Right, we call it selection. Yes. And these processes are really awesome, powerful tools. And basically, it's just kind of taking a mod podge of what nature does on its own. Like bacteria, they can incorporate DNA from the environment all on their own. They don't need humans to help them and put in injections of that. They, they've been doing it for uh, millions. millions of years. Actually, since the dawn of time yeah since the dawn of time we're learning from them (laughs) yeah they've got this down they know what they're doing we're still there was a really exciting period in earth's history when all all of dna was just exchanged freely among all living things and then for some one enterprising bacteria decided like i'm gonna hold on to my dna and started (laughs) this started this kick started a whole new branch of life where people had to compete with each other so this whole idea Mm -hmm. of like a Darwinian evolution started out with one little, like, very selfish organism that's like, I'm not really going to share my genes anymore. You got to compete with me yeah. for it. I like what I have. You can, I'm not going to, I don't want to. Good luck share. over there. Yeah. I've got some good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we use GMOs in science for very, very interesting reasons. And it has been an incredible tool for us to use. Yeah. We depend on it. And so not just agriculture, also yeah. scientific. You know, research really benefits from having these organisms. Yep. I promise you, almost every single study on cancer or AIDS or any disease depends critically on genetically modifying an organism or cell. Absolutely. Disease, any kind of disease um, work that's looking at disease in, in humans usually uses some kind of genetically modified bacteria or yeast or mouse or something so that they can see what's going on in this model system. Yeah. So with that, we're going to go ahead and move into our next segment. So I've told you about how we use GMOs in the lab, and you've heard about GMOs in the grocery store. And we're going to talk double back to the pesticide use Mm -hmm. and have Christiane tell us about this book, Silent Spring. Yes. So... um the segment that I'm going to lead us through today is our the classics segment, right? So this is where I kind of go back and tell you about something that was a really important moment in um, the, our topic, right, of, of agriculture and pesticide use and GMOs. Um, and so this kind of pivotal moment in this field or a kind of the 
a moment that brought to the awareness of the public kind of how using these pesticides in agriculture was affecting our ecosystems and our health um, was this book published by a woman named Rachel Carson called Silent Spring. So I highly recommend that you look at this book if you or read it or check it out or kind of investigate some more about it if you haven't or if you're interested in this topic. Um, this was a book that was published in 1962. And so Essentially, a little bit about Rachel Carson is she was um, a woman who was very interested in science uh, throughout her whole life, but she, um, for various reasons, couldn't end up pursuing a PhD. But she had the scientific training to really investigate what was going on with um, agriculture, and she knew how to kind of disseminate and, and research and understand um, what was going on with research at the time. So she had that knowledge and that training, but she was also had was really talented at explaining that science to a general public. So she was really interested in what's happening to our ecosystems as we incorporate or um, basically are mass using these chemical pesticides, right? So before this book was published, it was really common in the United States and around the world to you know, to use chemical pesticides. And the reason that this had really kind of seen an uptick in chemical pesticide use over the past, you know, several decades is because um, technology and chemical engineering actually made it a lot easier to manufacture um, all of these new types of pesticides that wouldn't naturally be available in the world. So it's not something that you would just encounter in the world, but you could engineer it in a laboratory. And it was very effective at killing pests and things like that. So things like bugs and weeds. And, and so you could engineer these, kind of manufacture them, mass manufacture them and sell them as, as a pesticide. And then what would happen is you'd have these big agricultural fields or you'd you know, go along a road and you'd see all these weeds or in a neighborhood and they would essentially crop dust um, the pesticide over these agricultural areas. So crop dusting is basically when they have this small little plane that has these little arms out to the side and they pump the pesticide um, into those arms and it kind of flies slowly over the entire field and deposits the pesticide. So it's just like... Man, I remember seeing this. Right. I grew up in Indiana, so it's like everywhere is cornfields. Exactly. I remember driving through and like seeing those plants. Yeah. So if, if, if you live near or around um, agriculture, you've probably seen this at some point. So it just deposits this massive blanket over the entire field of pesticides or sometimes fertilizer and things like that. Um, and then... This was also being done in like neighborhoods and on the streets and roads and things like that. So they would do this over neighborhoods, and sometimes you would see in like um, or or um, orchards. I'm, ima I'm imagining this kind of old timey black and white video. Like <laughs> everyone gather around now yeah. as we spray DMT all over the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's totally safe for you and your family. Basically, uh, no one realized that there was anything that was at all to be concerned about. So they had for like in orchards, orange orchards and things like that. And in neighborhoods, they would have these trucks, kind of like water tanker trucks. But they would spray, again, these pesticides and these insecticides over a neighborhood. And the kids would follow the trucks and like play in the, the pesticides, essentially, like kind of follow the trucks as they slowly rolled through the neighborhood. And no one really was aware uh, in the general public that this was at all something to be concerned about until Rachel Carson really brought this to the forefront that these chemicals, like if you look at what they're doing in these systems and how they are staying in these systems, so they're not excreted from the body if they're ingested, if you eat them or somehow come into contact with them, they stay within the cellular material of your body and just accumulate over your lifetime. And they're really, really toxic. And they do these really gnarly things to your cells and your, your bodily functions. So she 
saw that this was happening and she kind of was in contact with several people who were concerned about what was happening in their ecosystem. So she had also been talking to people like the at the Audubon Society, which is a big bird society in the United States um, that studies and is big into bird watching and, and all about kind of studying birds. And they had noticed that um, there was a big die-off of birds uh, recently in the past, you know, several years, especially in areas that had been sprayed with these really intense uh, pesticides. So yeah. they were seeing a mass die-off of birds, um, livestock like cows and cattle and sheep that were coming into contact with agriculture or crops that had been sprayed and eating it. They were getting really sick or dying. A lot of the people who were actually hand like spraying these things, if they had to spray it with just a hand sprayer and there wasn't driving the truck or if yeah. they accidentally came into contact with it, they would get really sick mm-hmm. um, because it's just so toxic. And the government, the reason that this wasn't really well known is is these when this had become a possibility to manufacture and, and sell these pesticides um, on a massive scale, yeah. they didn't really take the time or do the due diligence to study how this would affect a system in the long term. Yeah. Um, what is a lethal dosage? What's what are these what are these chemicals actually doing in the body? So this is one of those cases of industry getting away from science, like just woohoo! Right. Here we go. We found this awesome thing. Let's just put it out everywhere. Yeah. So they and science is like wait wait slow down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they took the science, they saw that it was something they could sell and something they could really do a lot with, and they kind of ran away with it. So um, there was not really the the work put in to study what this was doing to the systems, and it turns out that these chemicals just accumulate in the bodies of the people that they come in contact with, the animals. So the big story that came from this, um, the EPA was actually... Fun, uh, founded shortly after this book was published and, and in a direct response to kind of this book and how it changed the public perception of pesticide use and agriculture and things like that. But um, it also uh, was really important for just the general understanding of you know how we're growing our crops and making us reconsider if there's other alternatives to uh, growing crops. The other big thing, so I mentioned that the birds, they noticed the birds had been dying out. Um, And not only were their birds dying, but they were really struggling to reproduce. So they would lay eggs that wouldn't hatch or they would lay less eggs. So it was really hard for these birds to reproduce. And the the kind of iconic story from this essentially was um, there's a pesticide that was being used called DDT. Um, That was a really toxic, um, very highly poisonous uh, pesticide, and this was accumulating in the birds. And essentially, what was happening is our beloved bird of the United States, the national bird, the bald eagle, was dying because it was accumulating. It was eating things that had come into contact with DDT, and it was just accumulating these really high dosages of DDT in its system. And it could no longer. They were dying off, and they were failing right, to reproduce. Yeah. It seems really symbolic, right? That this period of the uh, 50s, 60s, this period of like great industrial abundance right. and American yeah. growth, resulted in the death of our national eagle. Right. It, it got so bad our that national it was symbol. it was endangered to the point of if we didn't change something immediately, they were going to die out. And so that's um, shortly thereafter, they outlawed the use of DDT for agricultural um, reasons and crops and, you know, looked for alternatives. Um, It wasn't completely outlawed. So I believe it was still allowed to be used in like 
cases of specific. malaria, like mm. this was the big thing is like kind of addressing malarial issues or in emergencies. But yeah. there was basically a big push to using alternatives that were not nearly as toxic and, and doing the due diligence to research what these kind of chemicals were doing to these systems. So yeah. she really like blew the lid open on all of this. She um, not only talks about birds, but she talks about how it's changing, you know, the affecting the fishes and our rivers and streams and it would, you know, kill off all of the native vegetation, and so yeah. If you're not upset, you're not paying attention. Yeah, yeah. it was it was really really drastically altering our ecosystems um, and just killing off a lot because it was just sprayed indiscriminately. So there was no selective targeting like you see in the BT crops. Um, it was just really indiscriminately sprayed over any area of concern, and so we, you know, ended up losing a lot of the diversity in these ecosystems because some of these things are really fragile and, and take a while to recover. So when they're killed off, um, the hardier, weedier things actually end up coming back quicker, and it, it can be contrary to what the whole point of using the pesticides was in the first place. So... She dramatically altered our perception of pesticides. She brought this to the forefront of the American public's attention. And really, um, her book was really important in, in instigating these changes in how we grow our crops and approach pesticide use. Of course, pesticides are still used today, but um, they ha are usually pretty heavily researched in advance to make sure that they are um, non-carcinogenic, um, so they don't cause cancer. Though there yeah. is a recent article um, about a groundskeeper who has recently sued Monsanto because he claims that the Roundup that he's used as a groundskeeper, the pesticide, um, has caused his cancer. Oh, so man. there's still a lot of controversy in that realm. But yeah. definitely check out her book, Silent Spring, another book I would love to do for a, a monthly book club. <laughs> um, she's really amazing. She, there's beautiful like illustrations. She's really... She, you can tell she really thought she really. Her story's kind of tragic, right? It is. The tragic thing about her story is she died two years after publishing this book, so she never saw how huge of an impact um, and all the change that happened due to her kind of bringing this to the forefront of the American public's attention. And she actually got a lot of criticism for it when she was working on it. A lot of people didn't want her to expose of all of this and, yeah. and she had a lot of pushback so she really it was her passion project and she really saw the need for it and, and made it happen so yeah. Silent Spring Rachel Carson classic classic book in um, environmentalism and and kind of agriculture and pesticide use and, and science and really was a really important book in our perception of of chemical engineering and pesticide usage and toxicity. So I, I highly recommend you check it out. So with the time that we have left, let us talk about our lives and switch into our lifting the veil. Yeah, do you guys want to lift the veil? Let's lift the veil for them Let's lift a it. little bit. Let's just give them a sneak, sneak peek. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lift my veil for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> What's behind the veil, Kyle? Tell us. Yes. Oh, man, this week I've been applying for uh, a number of conferences and a number of trips. Um, Something one thing as a grad student, one of the joys and delights um, is to attend a conference. So uh, every single little field and um, kind of discipline has its own meetings that they meet either a couple times a year, maybe other, uh, every other year. Yep. I am submitting an abstract to the APS American Physical Society, and an abstract Ooh. is a short blurb, like five sentences long, about something I've been working on and something I'm going to talk about. Yep. And so and share. Here's yeah. my talk. Here's why it's cool. Share. Here's what people. I did. Yeah. yeah. And they'll evaluate the abstract, see if it's worthy. Mm -hmm. And then you get accepted. And then you, uh, for me, I'm going to fly to Boston in April. And uh, sorry, March. 
There's also an April meeting, but that's for quantum information. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to the general meeting in March. <laughs> wow, Shucks, <nice>. right? <laughs> so all, all our Boston listeners, I'll be there in March. But I'm going to talk about uh, my research. And so that that's kind of a joyous part of grad school. Yeah, that is one of the nice payoffs is once you've finally gotten the research done to mm-hmm. be able to talk about it and share it with people who are also interested yeah. in the same thing. I'm, I'm going to a conference um, for me. I'm going to a conference in January called that's the SICBE's annual conference. And SICBE stands for the Society of Integrative and Comparative Biology. And it's a big conference. It's usually like almost I think it's close to 2000 people who who attend this conference every year. So I'll be going to that in January, and that's in Tampa, Florida. So that's my upcoming conference. I've already submitted my abstract since it's a little sooner than Kyle's, and so I'm waiting to hear back from them uh, so that I can make sure that they like my abstract, yeah. and then I'll, I'll once I get paid, I can buy the plane tickets. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Often a lot of things you do as a grad student are compensated, though. Like for me, if I get an Airbnb or a hotel in Boston, that'll be paid for. Flight yes. will get paid for. Yes. Registration will be paid for. I got Not out of I, I got some preemptive funding that I applied for for travel expenses from the department, so... Um, I got $500 from the department to sort of mitigate the cost of, of traveling to Tampa. Yeah, it is nice. And I know of a lot of departments that do that. They mm-hmm. sort of have a lottery for students or if, mm-hmm. they, if there's no competition, they'll just take whatever students happen to be traveling mm-hmm. yeah. and give them a couple bucks. The, it, it looks good for the department. It looks good for the school. It looks yep. good for the professor. If their students are out there talking about the science. Right. Yeah. It's why do science if you're not sure. It's a win-win. It. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all about that science marketing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think. Upcoming stuff. It's hard because uh, my schedule is so busy that I feel like I don't know what's going on tomorrow, <laughs> much less next week. Sometime. I just had one of those moments. <laughs> yeah. The conference is the next big thing I think that I have, but I have a lot of work to do before then. <laughs> so got to finish collecting all that data. Yeah. There's so many things that need to get done. Like they can't get out the door. Like they're all yeah. trying to get out at yep. once. <laughs> it's like 12 people trying to shove out of a tiny door and you're like, please. Someone just needs to make the first step and then clear the way. No, it's true. There's a lot that gets in the way of research. Yeah. So one thing that I'm working on, I'm on the Graduate Programs in Bioscience Student Advisory Council. Wow. And we've got a meeting coming up. So we have a few subcommittees. One of them is mental health. We've got a committee on student financial support, um, committees on trying to increase communication within the different programs. So graduate programs in bioscience is like an umbrella term for a lot of different yeah. PhD and master's granting programs. This is true. So the goal of like this um, committee, the student advisory committee, is to try to increase communication because there's a lot of heterogeneity or differences in how all of the programs run. Mm-hmm. So we've got that meeting coming up. This time the topic is going to be on mental health because we really want to push for having advisors and students all on the same page of caring about yes. each other's it's, mental health it's really through their important. PhD program. And I think this is, I've been seeing this get a little bit more traction in the scientific community um, recently where there's been a focus on talking about mental health as a graduate student yeah. because there's so much emphasis put on the science that you accomplish. Mm-hmm. But historically, there's not really been a lot of talk about like how 
depressed on average <laughs> grad students are yeah. and how stressful it is mm-hmm. and how you're expected to work, you know, 40, 50, 60, sometimes 80 hours a week yeah. to get everything done. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one really talks about like, oh, yeah, I went to my therapist or yeah, like yeah. that's not normalized yet mm-hmm. in the academic community. And it's something that we really should be pushing for because yeah. it's something that is a common, you know, concern and issue across yeah. graduate um, divisions. Yeah, we're programs. all humans and we yeah. all have different ways of dealing with things and mm-hmm. basically we ju- we just need to come to a consensus that number one it's important mm-hmm. we need to have everyone on board with that right. not just the students who are yes. <laughs> but also mentors and have them understand that there are certain the needs are going to be different for each student for right. how they take care of their mental and there's health. certain practices that like we can put into place either as mentors or as students to kind of understand like you know if I need to take a mental health day or if I need to tell my advisor like you know, I'm just under a lot of pressure right now and I have a lot of things going on. Can I, whatever you're asking me to do, can I put that off? You know, is it necessary that I have to do that right now? Can we kind of rearrange my schedule? And it's good to have, you know, open communication or have Mm -hmm. an advisor where you feel like you can communicate those things. Like, I have a lot going on. These are all the things that I'm doing. I know you wanted me to get this done. Is it all right if I, you know, we rearrange things so that I can do that later? Or, you know, just having that, that, that avenue is really, really important for your kind of, happiness as a graduate student because if yeah. you have a if you have a PI or an advisor who you don't ever feel the ability to be like I'm struggling yeah. then which is going to happen yeah of course <laughs> that's it's an not, inevitable a moment a PhD is not an easy thing it's not a breeze it's definitely a lot of struggle yeah. is involved but you can there's sometimes unnecessary struggle and yes. that's what I think is you know you, there's different things that we can change so that it's not as much unnecessary suffering and yeah. struggling in silence. So, so the goal of this council meeting is going to be like a giant brainstorm of how we can standardize practices that will enable, you know, our students to have better mental health and our faculty as well. Yeah, it's important it. stuff. Yeah, it's not all about the science all the time. We got to think about our the people, our well-being, the people doing yeah. the science. If you want. Sign, like career scientists who are wanna, going to want to do this and can do this at a for high a level for a time. long time, then you need to consider their mental health as yeah. well. Cool. I'm glad we you brought that up because it's definitely like a really important topic uh, that has kind of been talked about more and more now yeah. in, in the academic community. So very cool. Any other things going on in our lives? I think mm. that's probably, that's all I can think of, to be <laughs> honest. I mean, they're like... <laughs> Things outside yeah, yeah, of yeah, that, yeah. Of you course. know. Yeah. You know, I sleep and eat. Yeah, yeah. I, I had. I too put food in my mouth hole. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I too rest my head on a pillow <laughs> and huddle under the covers. Yeah. So that's that's about all my brain is capable of thinking of right now. Yeah. I think. Yeah. That's I'm thinking a good about my next it. coffee. Yeah, me too. I'm thinking about my first coffee. Ooh, I'm thinking about that donut. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think we'll end it there. Thank you for joining us again today. Hopefully, you learned a little bit about GMOs, about Rachel Carson, about a little grad bit grad school. Grad school. Yeah. So some some more cool facts for you today. Um, Again, this has been Insufficient Facts, your science-based podcast with us, your graduate student friends, your inside into the graduate school life. So you have been with Christiane, Raquel, and Kyle. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Hi, I'm Christiane, and thank you for joining us today on Insufficient Facts. If you love science like we do, then we invite you to join our exclusive Fact Finders Club. 
As a fact finder, you will get access to suggested readings, our notes on the show topics, blogs that take you behind the scenes of our lives as scientists, and access to a finder's exclusive chat space that includes Q&As with the team and the ability to submit questions and topics for future episodes. By joining, not only do you support the show and the panelists, but you'll gain access to resources and bonus extras that we don't release anywhere else. And you'll receive a merch pack that includes our official enamel pin, show art sticker, and thank you card. To join, visit our website, insufficientfacts.com. And now, please enjoy the trailer for our sponsor, All In My Head. To listen to their show, visit their website, allinmyheadpod.com. So, Nova, what would you like to talk about today? I just want to get some sleep, Dr. Andrews. Quiet. Quiet. So, sleeping... When we talked on the phone, you told me you suffer from sleep paralysis quite frequently. You aren't real. You aren't real. Keep quiet. Four years. I have to say, that's unprecedented. You you don't exist. When I wake up, you'll be gone. Quiet, little girl. Can't let you scream. You are not real. You're just a bad dream. Quiet! Now, how are you going to fix me? To keep up with our show, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All In My Head Pod. For additional content, join us on our website at www.allinmyheadpod.com.